You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. And I'm Simon. Vampire Simon. Mm. The Vampires won. What do you think of that? Would I... you rather have had night terrors? Do you know what? No. After watching that, no. Well, actually, you say that, if you'd read have watched Night Terrors, you might have enjoyed that even more. Mm. I don't think it'd been as much of, of a surprise as Vampires was. Okay, wind back 45 minutes then. We're not looking forward to watching it. No. Really not at all? No, because I've got this hang-up about vampires. I'm bored of them, just like I get bored of Batman. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute, because you're bored of Batman, you're bored of vampires. Because there's kind of a template to them that kind of... I don't know. There seems to be only so much you can do with them. Um, no, no, that 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 sounds wrong because uh, immediately people are saying to me, "Oh, Batman! You can do anything with Batman." No, no, no. It's but, true though. You can't. Mm. You know, when you've got a character, or in the case of vampires, not a character, but a I don't know species for one of a better word, mm. you've got certain rules laid down. Yeah, and. You have to try and interpret those rules in a particular way to aid whatever story you're trying to tell. Yeah, yeah. And there's no getting beyond those rules. You either use them or you ignore them. Mm. And I suppose that's what sinks some interpretations of Batman or vampires, whatever you want to say. Mm. I think... If you ignore the rules rather than using the rules, then two things. One, you've got to ask the question, well, if you're ignoring the rules, why did you bother going with the icon in the first place? Yes. And then on the other hand, you're kind of, if you're ignoring the rules, you have to put something else in their place, right? Mm, mm. So, you know, and... comes to the same thing but if you've got to put something else in their place mm. are you saying you know better than the rules yeah yeah so vampires of venice because mm. what we're here to talk about is this is the week when we're doing the matt smith episode and we had the vote between vampires of venice and night terrors and vampires of venice marginally won <laughs> by one vote so we watched vampires of venice mm. <clears throat> And, okay, let's jump the gun. They're not actually vampires. No. But they used the rules. They did use the rules and it worked. Yeah. It did work. It did work. And, but but in a lot of ways, it was kind of secondary to what was going on. 
it was kind of secondary to what was going on with the characters, the long-term story. Mm. And that's what I found so clever. I mean, it, for me, it was just absolutely brilliant. The pacing of it, the the way it all held together was brilliant up to about three quarters of the way through. And then when things started... when it the kind of vamp- a bit at the end, didn't it, it? It did, yeah. Once the vampires became the central thing of it, then it started getting a little bit shaky in places and a little bit ropey. But um, I think... Okay, let's go straight to the end because I thought that's the same not necessarily thing. that's not necessarily the the script or the story. I think it was no, no. I was going to say it was the same problem as Unicorn and the Wasp. I think the director let it down a bit in the last ten minutes, mm, mm, especially the fight scene. Yeah, the site the fight scene wasn't done very well, <clears throat> and it wasn't through lack of coverage, mm. and it wasn't through editing. No, this this is a completely different problem from last week. Last week it was because they didn't get the right coverage, so they couldn't edit around it. Mm. This week, he got tons of good coverage, and the editing was tight-ish. I don't think the problem was with the editing. I think the problem was with the performances he got, Mm. Mm. which made it difficult to edit around the performances, so the pacing was off in the last 10 minutes. It kind of gave the impression of... The overall impression was that of Rory being a bit of a dick. Yeah, a bit wet, as opposed to having some kind of comedic effect. You, you almost wanted to. The thing about the fight scene was, if you go back to kind of your standard and a regular story with a character like Rory in, mm. will get to that point in the story. And that's the point where that character proves himself. Yes. Because, you know, that's the the arc the character's been on in that episode is, this is his first time out. He's read a bit about what the Doctor is Mm. since Amy disappeared with him at the end of the 11th hour or whatever. But, you know, this is his first time experiencing it. And so the first half an hour of the episode is that character sort of fighting against it because this is this big, scary thing that's happened to the most important person in his life, and he's been left behind. Until, at the end of the story, after that fight scene, he's, actually, do you mind if I travel with you, because I see that what this is all about now. Mm-hmm. And the uh, arc the character has gone on is from being excluded to being included. Yeah. And not necessarily because they've asked him, but included in... The uh, what's the word I'm looking for when they're including in the friendship, yes, yeah, because it's like he's the outsider in the friendship and then he becomes the insider in the friendship, so that they all become equals at the end of the episode. And that fight sequence needed to demonstrate the point at which he goes from being the one thing to the other thing, but actually, in that fight sequence, he doesn't do that. No, I Usually, the way those things play out is that he would have been nervous, doing what, yeah, nervous doing what he was doing. You've got the whole thing with him slicing through the broom and all that sort of thing. And then suddenly, and he should pick up. It should be that Amy then tries to get involved, gets herself into danger. Then Rory comes up behind and rescues her. And rescues yeah. her, yeah. Or even if, or even if that doesn't happen, he there should be a point during that fight scene at which he takes it on. Yes. At which he takes the upper hand and gets stuck in. Mm. And that didn't really happen. 
No. And no. actually, I think it's in the script that it does because there's kind of an allusion to that when um, what is he called Francesco mm. gets wrapped up in the arras, the curtain. Yeah. And Rory kind of sticks it to him. Yeah. But the way it's directed, it just doesn't come off at all. No, no. So a bit of a failing on the director. You've got the whole thing from... of where Amy, what, what's Amy doing in the background? Well, you know, yeah, she they, just kind they, of disappears. She disappears and then she appears. Mm. And then the vampire blows up within seconds of being hit by sunlight. Oh, actually, that is a real big problem. Yeah. Because at that point, there are clouds all overhead and here she is reflecting the sun onto him. With oh, yeah. It hadn't even mirror. occurred to me. It was more the speed that got me. That You yeah. know, there's two, there's two big logical flaws in that episode. Mm. Well, I say big logical flaws. Not, not huge logical flaws. Flaws that didn't need to be flaws if somebody had had their eye on the ball. But the two moments in that episode where somebody takes their eye off the ball. One is... Special effects have demonstrated that there is now no longer any sunlight in Venice, and here she is reflecting sunlight onto yeah. Francesco. And the other problem is at the end when the fish queen yes. takes her clothes off, and in doing so, she takes the dress off, which has the perception filter on, so she shouldn't be... Human anymore. No. no. But then, you know, see, all it really needed there was maybe a line of dialogue. If the director, I don't know. See, the thing is, you can lay this at the director's door, but the director comes in, does a job on a television budget, mm. the television timetable. Mm. And also this bit, I'm not sure that bit was recorded in a foreign country. I think it probably was. Because a lot of the stuff, actually, that you think was recorded over in... What was the place called? Trogadia mm. um, in Croatia. A lot of it was actually recorded in Wales. Oh, okay. They went to like a castle and stuff like that. Mm, mm. So maybe it was abroad, maybe not. But the the thing I'm saying here is that the director, if it had been a feature film mm. and the director had had the time and maybe uh, you go back for a reshoot on this, they'd have realised and they'd have stuck in a line of dialogue saying... Uh, somewhere earlier in the episode saying the perception filter works by remote, right? Okay. Mm. So it's not necessarily a problem, but you've got to make that leap of the imagination without being told. Unlike mm. something that was foreshadowed earlier in the episode, one problem, I remember when this episode came out, one problem that people had with it was she throws herself into the water. Why do her children eat her? Surely they know that She's their queen. Yeah. But there is a line in the episode about 20 minutes earlier where she's leaning over the water. Yeah. And Francesco says to her, turn your perception filter yeah. off yeah. or they won't realise who you are. Yeah. And they'll eat you. <laughs> yeah. Well, what she should have done is jumped in the water with it clutched to her chest. So it's like there's an intent. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. she is committing suicide. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, purposefully so. While we're in the subject of things that don't quite make sense is another thing was that and then we can leave these well alone because ultimately it was a really good episode. But um, is are you where... putting words in my mouth? <laughs> <laughs> it's the bit um, where the Doctor has the first conversation with the Queen, and she realizes, oh yeah, he's Gallifrey, and he's a Time Lord. He should be in a museum, but she makes no no reference to the fact that he's obviously the Doctor. But then the next conversation they have, all of a sudden, she's aware that he's the one that killed his species. 
Oh, so, so you mean like, there's a little jump. She's she's aware he's a time lord, but she's not. She doesn't make any reference to what time lord she oh, is. But I think when he says I'm a time lord, and she knows that there's only one time lord left because he's the one who killed the rest of them, she must know already. Oh, okay, okay. So it's only that she doesn't mention it the first time out. Mm, okay, but it must be there, I suppose. I don't know. I see what you're saying. I didn't really pick up on that. Because no, no, I think I, he sort of says I'm from Gallifrey and the most she says about that is the fact that... He should either be in a museum or a mausoleum. Yes. There's some great dialogue in this episode. It's brilliant, yeah. Really good. Really good. And I think the fact that, you know, from my whinging about vampire stories and vampires and the fact they all seem to go one way and, you know, you as you say, the rules are there. For all of that, there was enough of everything else going on that... It was kind of secondary to the whole thing, really. He did. Toby Wethouse. And I don't know how much... Unlike with Russell T Davis, where you kind of know there's a massive amount of rewriting going on with almost everybody's scripts, it's hard to tell how much Stephen Moffat rewriting's going on here because well, it kind of felt like Toby Wethouse mm. rather than feeling like Stephen Moffat rewriting Toby Wethouse. Mm. Although, having said that, a lot of Stephen Moffat's rewriting is pretty invisible. Because I know he's rewritten some things that we're not going to name on this podcast, but that would be quite surprising. And you just honestly can't tell. So, maybe there is a lot of Stephen Moffat going on there, but Toby Whithouse has really done a decent job on this episode of disguising the fact that he's doing Dracula. Mm. in a way mm. or not he's not followed the Dracula story as close as Mark Gatiss followed the Robin Hood story in Robert of Shield. no no but he's got a lot of elements there Dracula starts with a willing not a self-sacrifice uh, somebody willingly giving themselves over mm. Dracula starts with the lawyer can't remember his name Harker the mm. lawyer, mm. willingly going to Transylvania to Castle Dracula, right? Mm. And it's a bit like it's a bit like in The Wicker Man, where at the end of The Wicker Man, it only works if he gives himself up willingly. Mm-hmm. So it's not like... So, so it's not like Harker's deliberately sacrificing himself. And in this one, uh, what's the girl called? Isabella? Isabella, yeah. It's not like she's deliberately sacrificing herself, but the... Uh, the allusion between the different stories is there in that it has to, it begins, the story begins with someone voluntarily entering danger without realising that that's what they're doing. Mm. And then there are other things as well. In the most famous version of Dracula, which would be the Bela Lugosi one, Mm. well, no, in all the different versions of Dracula, but these are the ones where it's most ostentatious, he he's a vampire bat who can turn into a bat, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, this was fish people instead, but they. If you do something like <clears throat> Frankenstein or Dracula or Doctor Jekyll or the mummies or whatever, you don't necessarily get that deep into it. That things like that. If you were doing, say. A Frankenstein in Doctor Who, a Frankenstein's monster, like in Brain of Morbius. But say, for example, they did a Frankenstein's monster story these days, it probably wouldn't be with the mad scientist creating the cadaver mm. out of 
you know, bits of dead bodies or whatever. It would be something else. Mm. But what I mean is you probably wouldn't have the mad scientist. Or, no, no, it's not that you wouldn't have the mad scientist. Oh, it's difficult to phrase how I want to say it. But what I mean is, in this, you still had the vampires turning it into fish. Yeah. Whereas in Dracula, you have the vampires turning it into bats. What I mean is, it's still there, that part of the story. Yeah. yeah. Which you would think would be one of the first things to be excised. Mm. It's mm. still there. Things that were missing, garlic. Yeah. Which I suppose, I mean, it's a 45-minute episode. I'm glad it wasn't crammed in, though. Like that, and yeah, you know, shoehorned in just to make sense of it, and you had the it cross thing with Rory. Really didn't you? Yeah, the cross thing, the cross thing is the bit that they did negate, but that works because mm. you know that's the bit where it's like it's it's something to illustrate something about Rory, mm-hmm. and it's also something to make point of the fact that it's not vampires. Yep. Out of yep. vampire law. <coughs> um, but the garlic would have been so easy to write in. They're fish, right? Mm. So it would have been so easy to write in something like, well, the fish, of course they don't like garlic. Mm. So it would have been so very easy. But it's a 45-minute episode, and it's like, you've already crammed in but the a mirror bunch thing of was, other stuff. The mirror thing was great. That was done. Yeah. It's, I like that. The perception field doesn't know what to make of their reflection, so <laughs> it just shows you nothing. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Very hot. They are. They were a bit grain chill. But yeah. Grain chill? Yeah. That's that's my name for um, kind of secondary act- actors who kind of, kind of, I don't know. It probably goes back to there was a girl who was in Grain Chill who was in um, Curse of Fenric with the long dark hair. And she was particularly bad as a kind of zombie type person. She wasn't a very good actor. No. Okay, so you're saying the yeah, vampire says, girls weren't great? They weren't great, but they looked all right. Yeah, I suppose so. They're probably <laughs> models. Yes. So yes. you'd expect them to look all right. They're probably yeah. great actors. And the one dialogue scene they had where they all speak in unison, mm. I thought that worked quite well. It did work quite well, and I love the fact... It's funny, you go back and you study Matt Smith's performance. He flirts with them in that room. Yeah, there are some things and that immediately makes you think about this thing about the doctor flirting, flirting with himself, uh, flirting with himself, flirting with with people, you know, flirting with his companions because of his appearance and things like that. It all kind of ties in. I love it. Well, it's odd because in that he's doing more of that than he will do later on, or when he, <clears throat> by the time you get to the second and third series with Matt Smith. When he does the flirting, he does it much more innocently. Mm. And it's like he's still finding the character, still finding how he's playing the character. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly solid, though, consisting, con- considering how... Um, Young. Yeah, and early mm. to the role he is. It's just very, very... I don't know, just solid. Yeah, he's exceptionally good. Mm. He looks so young compared to even how he, he does the hair. two or three years later. The hair is so big, yeah. Speaking of looks, we watched, last week we watched The Unicorn and the Wasp, Mm. which was 2008. Mm. Two years difference between that and this. Yeah. So much difference in the way it looks. Yeah, it is is a completely different different show. It's it's just got, um, I don't know, there's a little bit more class, I think. A little bit more. It just feels more like cinema. Mm. 
it's there's a lot of handheld cameras. We talked about this last time about mm. how Russell T. Davis didn't like handheld, and Stephen Moffat obviously pushed it right in the other direction. But it's not just the handheld; it's the lenses they use. Russell T. Davis after. Um, Oh, the director who came in and did those five episodes in the first series, whose name completely escapes me. Eros. No, 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 no. The one who did the five episodes at the end. Oh, at the end. Um, the guy who did Ultraviolet. Uh... And Perfect Parent. No, not Perfect Parents. Uh, yeah, Perfect Parent. Oh, name escapes. Doesn't matter. Mm. He did a lot of long angle lenses. Did Father's Day. Mm-hmm which requires the camera. It doesn't require the camera, but almost requires the camera to be still mm. because you record, you, you've got the camera much further away from the actors, usually. This had fisheye lenses and stuff like that. Mm. Mm. And there wasn't a... I don't recall there being much in the way of that sort of thing in Russell T. Davis. It's just like... It's just like Russell T. Davis said, and this is why I think the first five episodes of series one work better and feel more consistent than as you go through the rest of the series, the next five years, because Ross T. Davis has got fixed cameras, odd colours and odd colour combinations so that it is a slightly garish feel, a bit like a Terror of the Autons type feel. Mm, mm. And that continues right through Russell T. Davis's run. But in the first five episodes, that's combined with... Okay, because what what he's doing is kind of giving it a sort of slightly comic book feel, mm. a slightly cartoony feel even. Mm. And in the first five episodes of Russell T. Davis, from Rose up to World War Three, you've got that in the acting as well. Eros Lynn and Keith Bogue are bringing that out of the actors too. So this larger-than-life quality is in the content and in the way that content's depicted. And after you get Dalek and Father's Day, and gradually it goes completely in the other direction. Mm. So that when you get to things like human nature, there's a real dichotomy between the garish and, you know, something that completely the opposite, mm. which is where it's trying to be... Which is why I think in human nature, I don't think the tear-jerking scenes at the end work. Right. Between, okay. between Jessica Hines and David Tennant, because mm. I just, I don't think there's a consistency. And in the characterization and in the interpretation, and as good as it is, and I'm not saying it's not good, because mm. human nature is a brilliant story, yep. but I think the consistency's gone by the time you get there. I just... I'd have liked to have seen it stay slightly more cartoony because it just felt more consistent. Mm. Whereas in this, you've gone in completely the other way. Instead of making anything that's even remotely cartoony, what he's done is he's taken similarly mad ideas. I say he, Stephen Moffat, all of them, whoever worked on this series, they're all on the same page as far as this concerned. They're taking equally ludicrous ideas and doing them the way a feature film would do them to make them feel real. And that episode, as funny as the dialogue is, mm. and throughout Stephen Moffat's tenure, there's always been really funny dialogue, but that's funny dialogue in the same way as Aaron Sorkin writes funny dialogue in The West Wing and yeah. Studio 60 and all these other series. It's clever people 
speaking in a way that reflects how clever they are, right? Yeah. And it doesn't... And that's not really realistic, really, because if you put six people into a room, they're not all going to be as clever as each other. But I don't see it as a problem, because I'd rather see people being funny and being clever yeah. than I would not. Yeah. You know, it could be dull. Yeah, you watch Big Brother, couldn't you? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, or just even EastEnders or Coronation Street or whatever, there's... In Coronation Street, there's not that great an amount of variety in the way people speak in that either. No. So as long as you characterise beyond the humour and the wit, then that's no different from something like Coronation Street, where they come at it from the other angle, where they characterise beyond the lack of wit. Mm. Mm. So uh, in this episode and in the rest of Stephen Moffat's tenure, you've got this layer, this kind of film over the top of it of clever dialogue, Mm. but underneath you've still got all the elements that make it feel real. Yeah. So actually, Rory might be coming out with funny lines, Mm. but it still feels like a genuine person undergoing genuine emotions. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's the... It's the, uh, what's the word? The tones, as and when they're, they're needed. Yeah. yeah. Mm. All apart from the last ten minutes. Yeah. Which is where I think the director kind of loses it. Yeah, it does. It just suddenly loses its flow, because I just sort of, I looked over to you while we were watching it, and sort of after the first sort of 20, 20 to 30 minutes, I said, this is just so solid. Yeah, you really? said there's nothing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I mean, we we're looking for something out, wrong. But yeah, it yeah. didn't quite work. There's some not very good special effects. Yeah. the um... But they've moved to HD and they've had a budget cut. Mm. So something had to give somewhere. Yeah, the the storm at the end with it kind of superimposed by the it's towers. It's not awful. It's but... not, no, but it took me back to Twister because I saw Twister fairly recently and how those effects had dated. Oh, really? Mm. I've not seen Twister since it came out. No, yeah, it's that same thing, seeing the line around the people, you know, it's, it's a money thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then at the end where Matt Smith's on the roof, mm. you know, doing the, pressing the off button. Mm. And that's it, isn't it? It's resolved with an off button. Yeah. Yeah. Another quick fix. Which, which, is... which, you know, you know, there's a joke there, obviously in the script it said, yeah, he looks around looking for something and eventually he just finds a little switch, mm-hmm. which is great. Great little joke, but it's got to be played out. Correctly, and maybe the maybe the design let it down a bit in that respect. It was literally a switch. Yeah, a switch, and he's looking at all these balls and gizmos going around in circles, and then there's this little switch at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, you can't feel there could be another joke there somewhere. I mean, it was a joke, but it just didn't kind of. Yeah, it didn't kind of come off. Mm, mm. An off switch, though, at the end of a Doctor Who story. Yes. I know, that's the kind of thing people complain about, but it's, you know, the story is about finding the off switch. Mm. And actually, you know, last 10 minutes of this, he didn't need to find the off switch. He just went up to the roof, opened the machine, and the off switch is there. I mean, if it was all clockwork, then this is me sort of giving ideas. He should take a cog out. Yeah, somewhere along the 
Yeah, either that or somewhere in during the story, he picks up a box of matches or a, or a used match, takes it out of his pocket and just sticks it in the cog and it just stops. This goes back to what I said about Power of Three when we talked about that mm. back in 2012. And, you know, one of the complaints about that afterwards was that, oh, he uses the sonic scru- screwdriver to magic the problem away. Yeah. And, you know, what I always said about that was, no, it doesn't. It's about the problem was resolved with an off switch mm. and he uses the sonic screwdriver rather than pressing the button on that occasion. Yeah. But it's not the sonic screwdriver that solves the problem. The problem is solved once you've found the off switch. Yeah. And there, as in here, it doesn't, it's not, there were two ways to go about it. You could either hide the off switch and have the doctor and the companions solve some kind of puzzles to find the off switch mm. by which I don't mean solving jigsaw puzzles mm. or even solving the kind of puzzles you get in the pyramids of Mars or death of the Daleks, but undergoing some kind of test to find the off switch and on neither occasions. So they do that on both occasions, the off switch is in the really most obvious place in power of three, they go to a spaceship and lo and behold, that's where you turn it off mm. in this. He climbs up to the roof where the machine is and lo and behold, that's where you turn it off. Mm. So on both occasions, something's been lost in the last sort of 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Because... Literally lost in translation, yeah. Well, the way a story works is if that was a feature film, the first 35 minutes, 40 minutes of this would be the first 80 minutes of a feature film, Mm. but the last five minutes of this would be the last 25 minutes of a feature film where you would undergo those tests in order to get to the off switch. But because it's only 45 minutes, I guess that's the compromise you make. If you're going to tell a whole story in 45 minutes, at the end of that 45 minutes, (coughs) if it's going to be an off switch, you just put the off switch in front of the character and make it so that the character has to undergo something arduous to get there. Mm. And in this instance, it's Matt Smith climbing up onto the church tower roof to get to the machine, which is a bit of a... takes you back to Daleks in Manhattan. Mm. But there you go. Just because it's been used once, you can't not ever use it again. So he does undergo something here, but it feels way more like a physical solution than it does a solution that is born out of intelligence. Mm. Mm. So... I'm not saying that's necessarily a problem. I'm just saying uh, when we were watching it, the last five minutes, ten minutes didn't seem to be working and then it just stops. Mm. And then you get the sacrifice at the end to kind of make up for it so that you get an emotional beat at the end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that 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 whole dynamic between the father and the daughter, you know, Isabella, um, it was all working. There's, there felt like there were some little jumps. There was a little jump from when... He first drops the daughter off. Then the next time you see the doctor, he's just bumped into them, and all of a sudden he's fully aware that they're monsters and and all that sort of. There seemed to be a little jump there, unless that character barely had any dialogue. Mm, yeah, very tricky. He's like he's in the whole story, but they don't give him any, and they give him stuff to do mm, because great he actor. becomes yeah he yeah. becomes like the doctor's second in command yeah in the city. Mm. But they don't give him any dialogue. They show him dropping the doctor off, yeah. picking the doctor up, taking the doctor here and taking the doctor there, and all this stuff. But actually, he doesn't say anything after that first scene. Barely no. anything at all. Did you say he does actually see Isabella get dropped into the water? 
No, you see her get taken behind the door. Mm. There's a scene at the doorway where she's... We don't, we don't get a reaction to the fact that she's died. No, we, we We get the payoff with his sacrifice. You know, you think, yeah. well, he's got nothing to lose now. But you don't kind of get that that little emotional journey which says, I've got nothing to lose now. Somewhere during the writing of that story, because when a story is written, it goes through a treatment process before it goes into script. Mm. And even once it's gone into script, it goes through several stages before it gets to, you know, the point at which anybody's even thinking about a final draft. Somewhere between the start of the process and the end of the process, that character's had a bigger role to play. Mm. Because all the echoes of that character's bigger role are still there on the screen, but they're only echoes of that bigger role, aren't they? They are. But even the the fact that he, you see him wearing Rory's top. Mm. That it kind That's of, a great joke. It though. is a great joke. And, and you kind of feel, yeah, they're all working as a team now, and this is this is great. He's, um, but you don't to get to hear him... Um... um Talking to the others on any kind of a level. No. You know, you need to hear some kind of repartee between all four of them so that you feel that they're all, you know, on a level with one another, a team. Yeah, because you, you kind of get echoes of the, It's almost like the Bill and Ted thing where you've got, you know, where they get the um, the personalities from history starting to be brought into the present day and, and, and starting to use modern day things. And I love that. And uh, I think they could have done a lot more with the father's character. And I just, I just felt like Isabella, Isabella's death was kind of... Slightly like, thrown away. A bit of a plop as opposed to a big splash. Uh, hmm. The bit where she gets... The bit where they come running out through the doorway mm. and there's sunlight and so she freezes in the door and the other girls get her and drag her back in. Mm. That could have been... That could have been made really powerful by some close-ups and things like that. Something to give you the impression that she'd gone so far down the process that actually there was no going back anyway. Well, the director missed it again there, didn't he? Mm. I suppose he's under pressure because he's filming abroad, if those are scenes that are filmed abroad. And I suppose he's under pressure anyway because it's television and he does a really good job with some of the other stuff. Absolutely brilliant, yeah. As I say, the first... Yeah, even up to the first half an hour is just great. Really solid. But what he does, he gets all the character stuff when it's kind of opening out. Mm. But then he misses all the character stuff when it's closing back up. Because, you know, and the arc of any story is, you know, for the first two thirds of it, the characters are opening up. And then in the last 15 minutes again, they're kind of putting everything back in the box so that you can reset for the start of the next episode. And all the stuff where things are opening out, when the kind of explanations of who the characters are and what journey they're about to go on, all that stuff, he gets great. Mm. You know, Rory, you really mm. believe in everything that he's going through. Amy, you've got a really interesting thing going on with Amy, where <clears throat> she's spent so much time with the Doctor now that the Doctor has become her normality and Rory has become kind of the weird thing that mm. is off to the side. Mm. And you get a distinct impression of that as well because of the way it's directed and the way Amy defers to the Doctor mm. for the first half an hour of the episode before she starts deferring back to Rory at the end. Mm. But at the end, it's like, it's not like Chekhov's gun, but <clears throat> when you tell a story 
oh, we've said this before, everything you set up needs to pay off and everything that pays off needs to have been set up. Mm. And it's almost a bit like the director got all his emphases wrong in the last 10 minutes because even though the payoffs are there in the script, they're not all showing up on the screen. It'd be interesting to go back to it. In the, Before, it just, yeah, sorry, go on. But they're not showing up emotionally. No. You can see them, like the bit where the girl gets caught in the doorway in the sunlight and gets dragged back inside. Mm. It's there on the screen, mm. but the emotional payoff isn't there because you need to see how much pain she's in as she gets dragged back in. Yeah, it'd be interesting to go back and make a, make a note if you had time to see which, which scenes of... aren't working. And is it mainly location work that's not working? Well, it's... Pretty much all on location. Is it? Yeah, the whole thing. I'm uh, just thinking a lot to... of the character pieces are, are inside, so whether they're studio... Yeah, but they're in a castle in Wales. In Wales? Yeah. As opposed to the foreign shoot, then? They went to all the street scenes. Well, I say all, but roughly the divide is street scenes are in Croatia, mm. castle and indoors. Courtyard and indoors are in Wales, mm. in a castle. Mm. I don't okay. think there's anything in the studio in that at all, actually. Oh, okay, okay. I could be wrong. I'm just wondering if there was a different block between the two kind of sections that were working and weren't working because the, as you say, the close-up character stuff was really, really working. And uh, but I think I said to you while we're watching as well, it's, it really felt like as a story, as a whole, if you take out the um, the Doctor Amy Rory stuff, it is almost like a classic story. Really yeah. close to a classic story. I mean, obviously, I was immediately thinking of State of Decay and things like that, and uh, it 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 really did feel like that. The there was one thing in there I can't bring it to mind now exactly what it was that really didn't feel like classic story. Possibly a bit with Rory, actually. No, not that. No, there was there was only one thing in there where I thought, no, only the new series could have done that. It wasn't mm. a line of dialogue, it was a plot point. Mm. There was one plot point where I thought, no, classic series wouldn't have done that. But almost everything else were things that you could imagine in the classic series. So it was. It was a bit like a classic series four-parter boiled down to 45 minutes. It was, it was the part where they were climbing up out of that drain in the middle of that courtyard. I just thought, oh, God, that just looks like a... It does look like a set. I mean, obviously, it's a bit like that bit in um, Reboss. Uh yeah, yeah, Rebus operation. Yeah, or or even it's even like a scene at the pirate planet or something like that. It's um, just imagine the studio made out like that. So it was great. Really liked it. But yeah, yeah, it's very Tom Bakery actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very much so. And like a cross between Graham Williams and Philip Hinchcliffe, Tom Baker, mm. the sort of vampire thing. Although State of Decay turns up in season eighteen, it was mm. obviously written earlier. But the vampire thing feels like one of the Philip Hinchcliffe movie pastiches. And yet the dialogue and the characterisation felt much more like something out of Graham Williams. Mm. Mm. Oh, I'm, I'm pleased the um, the listeners chose that one, actually. Yeah. I can't believe I'm saying that because I was like, I was rooting for Night Terrors all the Maybe way. Maybe we ought to watch Night Terrors as well in a couple of weeks and see okay. what we think of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, maybe we should do a few of these episodes now because we're enjoying doing them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And get, I, that's, that's breathed new life into the story for me. It's, um, yeah, I'm rooting for Vampires of Venice. I can't believe I'm saying that, but yeah, it was good. I yeah. actually shot my fist then. The weird thing is about it is where it sits in Series 5. Because mm. Series 5 has got, for me, it's got a really strange feel of 
Russell T Davis hanging over into Stephen Moffat. And I don't think Stephen Moffat really gets to be Stephen Moffat until Series 6. The, the Silurian story feels like a Russell T Davis story. Yeah. With a, no, I tell you what, <clears throat> something out of the 11th hour feels like a Russell T Davis plot given a Stephen Moffat makeover with mm. Stephen Moffat dialogue mm. and it's got more of the Stephen Moffat cinematic camera style mm. but it feels like a Russell T Davis plot whereas if you get to the Hungry Earth that feels like a Stephen Moffat plot where one episode's in one place and the other episode's in the other and there's uh, and some of the things they throw in like the grass you know the blue grass that's growing out of the ground because of mm. what's happening under the ground yeah that feels a bit more Moffaty than Davis to me although I suppose it's in between mm. the two there are some stories in this series that feel really Russell T. Davis. Yeah. There are some stories in this series, like Amy's Choice, that feel very Stephen Moffat. Mm. And there are some, like The Eleventh Hour, that's kind of somewhere in the midpoint in between. And the whole of Series 5 is kind of back and forth between Davis and Moffat. And I, it doesn't feel to me like it's properly got its identity yet. No. I, I, again, I'm glad I watched that again because in my memory, Vampires of Venice was kind of a bit of, excuse the pun, treading water. One of those treading water episodes. You know, just, but actually, oh, it's just another it's, one. It's another padding story, but it wasn't at all. It was. It felt a lot more Stephen Moffat yeah. than Russell T. Davis. Yeah, there's a lot of meat around. on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's <clears throat> one of the things that really brought that out how much more Stephen Moffat than Russell T Davis it was was that if that had been a Russell T Davis story it would have been set either with a character or with an historical juncture that you could have pointed out and said right like Agatha Christie and the day Agatha Christie goes missing for 10 days or oh this is the one set in World War Two, or this is the one with Shakespeare. Mm. And, and almost there, I can't think of an historical story with Russell D. Davis that either doesn't feature a person actually out of history or an event actually out of history. Mm. It's like, this is the one that... And here we've got Vampires of Venice, which comes after another really odd historical, which is Victory of the Daleks. Mm. Because Victory of the Daleks has got a version of Churchill who's already known to the Doctor and who's working with the Daleks, mm. right? Normally in the historical, the monster comes in and the monster is the intruder in the story. But actually, the way Victory of the Daleks is set up, it's the Doctor who's the intruder. Yeah, and history's kind of manipulated to make the, make the story work. Exactly. And then this one is the other side of that coin. Mm. This one is... Uh, this one is the the smugglers to, um, you know, a Russell T. Davis story being something like Marco Polo or The mm. Massacre. Mm. Whereas Davis would have picked a character like Marco Polo or an event like The Massacre to write a story around. This one just says, right, we'll take a location and we'll set the story there. And the fact that it's set in 1580 is actually pretty irrelevant to what goes down. It is, yeah, but there is that nice little thing about the plague that it's slightly out of time that the... Uh... Yeah, the plague that died out hundreds of years ago. Yeah, and she's, she's, she's using... saying it's still going on outside to 
keep the place isolated. Mm. But actually, the story of there being vampire fish who've crash landed outside a city on the edge of a river and they're using the water and all this kind of stuff, you could have written that story in the modern day and it wouldn't really have made any difference. No. So that was one odd thing because Stephen Moffat, his approach to the historical stories is so much different from Russell T. Davis's was. Mm-hmm. It's like you are... Girl in the Fireplace is a great example. It's like, is that an historical story or is it set on a spaceship? Mm. It's neither and it's both. Mm. And this is a story where they've taken an historical background and put in a story that doesn't feed out of that historical background. I mean, obviously, I always go on about your story has to come out of the premise and the premise of there being fish vampires, you said it in Venice, is obvious. Those two things go together. And the fact that it's vampires dictates when it takes place. But, you know, there's no historical personage. There's no historical event. No. There's nothing to anchor it to a specific time. It's almost like this is a cosmetic thing to make it look really cool. Well, it all works. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, as we've said, it looks so much different, but it's just got. It feels. The the way it's filmed just makes it feel more real Mm. Mm. and more impactful. Yeah. On the characters and on the viewer. Mm. Mm. Right, there's only two of us. Should we mark it and move on and make this an actual 60 minute podcast for a change? Okay. Anything else you want to bring out? I can't think of anything. No, no. The woman who plays the Queen, you did say how brilliant she was. She was quite brilliant, yeah. I mean, in general, the performances were were great. The um, guy who plays her son, mm. I kept imagining... Oh, there was, yeah, there was on. one point early in the episode <laughs> when, I suddenly, when it suddenly struck me, and I don't know if I thought of this the first time I watched it, where it suddenly struck me, it's Snake Dance all over again, and I kept imagining being played by Martin Clune. <laughs> I loved the bit, just before the fight scene, where he obviously, with those teeth in, would never have been able to say where he says... Oh, the dialogue's all over What did you dance. say about my mother? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, obviously it would have went... <laughs> and, uh, yeah, dumped over. There's a lot of ADR in that. I don't like ADR, but ADR's a necessary evil, really. Actually, that was one of the things in the fight sequence, wasn't it? It felt like uh, Rory's, all Rory's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that that whole thing was ADR'd because it's set in a very tight, echoey location. Mm -hmm. Nothing you can really do about that. You just can't use the dialogue when you're out recording somewhere like that. I don't want want to leave it on that note because I thought it was a very strong episode. Well, let's give it a mark and see. Okay. Go on then. Out of ten? Oh, I want to give it an eight. I want to give Toby Whithouse an eight. But as an episode as a whole, I'll say it's a seven. Yeah, me exactly the same. It's like a script is an eight, mm. direction's a six. And so it's a seven. Yeah. Yeah, because it was... The script was strong, but the direction didn't do it justice. No. But seven is still a solid mark. Mm. Mm. Actually, I think it... I think it probably, because I mentioned Robert of Sherwood earlier, I think it probably is on a level with that. This had more originality. Well, I say originality. It's all vampires and stuff like that. This had more imagination mm. than that did. That was more fun than this was, which is not to say that this wasn't fun. 
But I think by Series 8, they're really firing on all cylinders. That episode, if it had been... Just imagine that being put together in the same way as dinosaurs as on a spaceship. It could have been the same. Yeah, yeah. Have that same consistency all the way through. But then this is the start and they're finding their feet. Yeah. But yeah. unlike Russell T. Davis, when he comes in and starts, he's not allowed to find his feet because he's establishing it. Mm. So his first series, his first series this has to be brilliant. Nobody can... F- Nobody can fail in any department. and yeah. I mean, they do, but the when you're doing your first series of a, something like that, if it's going to go any further, it has to be really strong. Whereas somebody like Stephen Moffat comes in, and instead of having to be really strong in every department, what you're doing instead is saying, right, I have to put my stamp on all these different departments. I was going to say the 11th hour, and every time I think of that, I think of that being the Moffat stamp. Well, it's like it's like he's taken a Russell T. Davis story mm. and he said, "Right, I'm Stephen Moffat, and this is what I'm doing with Doctor Who." Do you know what makes me laugh when you get people saying about this whole Doctor Who Sherlock thing that you know he'd almost to the point where they sort of say, oh, "We'd rather be doing Sherlock," so he tries to do Sherlock in Doctor Who until he actually gets Sherlock. And they always quote the eleventh hour thing, the whole looking around the the village green and and all the looking at things and that. You think, well. Yeah, if that's in his head, then that's gonna come out. If it's a, if it's a Moffat, um, you know, characteristic, then so be it. And there's actually that big gap between Eleventh Hour and when he actually starts doing Sherlock. So there's no, there's no real overlap as such. Not until much later. No, on. no, no. Oh, it's only because you know, for the of the ten million people or whatever it is who watched the Eleventh Hour, mm. nine of those. Nine million of those people haven't watched it since. No. So it worked for them then. And yeah. that's the point. Yeah. It wasn't for the however many hundreds of thousands probably have watched it since and however many tens of thousands think about it the way we do because they're fans, that's just a tiny fraction of the audience. For most of the audience, it just worked. Yeah. Uh, and so I remember watching it for the first time and seeing bits like that and think, finding it kind of slightly disconcerting. Um, I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but um, but just loving it because it seems so fresh. Which again, I couldn't believe it when people were saying, "Oh, it's no different to how it was before." It was, it was so different, so different, a different feel. Yeah. Right. We've got an email from David Carrington. He says, "I wonder if this is reference to Robert of Sherwood." He mm. says, "Dear Jr. and his merry band of men." <laughs> And he's put men in inverted commas. Yes. I'm not sure whether that's because he doesn't feel you're men or because he thinks maybe you don't actually exist and I just make this whole thing up yeah, maybe. and do all the funny voices. We didn't ask Lee to give uh, no, Vampires of Venice a mark, did we? No, we didn't. Perhaps if he could have been bothered to turn up, he could have been bothered to give it a mark. Mm. <laughs> David Carrington says, Your recent podcasts have been as enjoyable as ever, especially Rosie. And the era's rundowns. I'm not sure if it's down to you lot or the stickiness of Sharak's jizz spilt over the recordings, but I've had my headphones glued to my ears every week. (laughs) When you were chatting about the possibility of Gallifrey being reintroduced in the coming series, a couple of thoughts struck me. 
With Gallifrey as a metaphor for Britain in its post-imperial decline, the new series could take that on by bringing Gallifrey back as a once proud and universally powerful society, re-emerging into this dimension, chastened and unsure of itself, much like the UK. Yeah, very good. Gallifrey can't stand on its own, aloof and superior to the rest of the universe any longer, so you'd have to have a subtext of that society as a place in an excess existential crisis after being locked out of time and facing down its own demise. You'd have some Time Lords being nostalgic and backwards looking towards an imagined lost golden era, while others give up on their race and choosing to serve their own interests. I guess he's saying people would just be leaving the planet and going off and saying, right, I'm done with this. Mm. The Master. Well, I'm saying, actually, that idea is not unlike characters like the Master and the Doctor leaving Gallifrey in the first place. Mm. Mm. So maybe then the cosmos becomes populated with more renegade Time Lords. And when I say renegade, I don't necessarily mean evil. I just mean ones who've left. Yeah. See, my, my worry about, without interjecting too much into the letter, is um, my worry with... It's funny, talking about DC characters again. Um my worry with bringing Gallifrey back is the same thing I, I get concerned about with the character Superman in that they're too powerful. Mm. There's, there's too much. Well, that's it. That's what David's saying. Yeah. This is the way to bring knock, it down. Knock him down a peg or two. Yeah. Uh, Garazon says once his home is back, the doctor could interact with his own people across a series, teaming up with some to fight foes and solve mysteries standing up to those who want Gallifrey to aggressively assert itself on the universe, or just running into other independent Time Lords, either as the centrepiece or sidebar to an episode. A meddling monk series arc could be fun, the Doctor noticing shifts in time and investigating why, each episode following a journey driven by the changes. You could be untethered around the universe, with historicals on Earth exploring alternatives, grand and small, for example Nazis turning World War II in their favour, with outside helps. Help, perhaps a two-parter where the history of World War II is repaired, but it triggers changes to the Cold War, and that needs to be resolved too. Looking forward to the next ten years, the idea of movies running concurrent to the TV series is excellent and utterly feasible. The Star Wars and Trek have managed to maintain a cross-media extended universe without compromising their internal narrative, and the reinvention of Star Trek's original timeline has shown that you can take an audience with you if you attempt something bold. Doctor Who would be the perfect premise for a Marvel-style expansion that takes in whatever TV ends up becoming in the future alongside movies. Marvel have shown the way for taking a world and living in it with interlinked films and TV. And actually, just to add to that, that was one of the things when Doctor Who came back, the reason for things like the Tardisodes and the games we've had mm. is that we live in an expanded media universe. Mm, mm. You have to use that to your advantage if you want to stay afloat, if you want to be the best, if you want to be at the top. And maybe movies would be another aspect of that. Uh, David says, finally, you could have future or recent Doctors on the silver screen, an eighth Doctor on the fringes of the Time War film, and perhaps a Time Lord Society Origins movie that brings out other characters Think Frankenstein-like experiments with regeneration and the radical possibilities of harnessing stars for time travel before some hideous war or calamity drives the society <coughs> into withdrawing to observe and lord it over time. 
Thanks, as always, for such an engaging and funny show. David. <laughs> well, well nice you letter. could have all that. I think a lot of fans would think you were taking it too far with that. Well, it's funny, isn't it? It's the irony of it. As I was, as I was hearing that, I was hearing, yeah, it's all interesting ideas and probably maybe in a novel or in a book that would be read by fans, but as a multi-million dollar film is treading that fine line between pleasing fans and and something the public are going to watch. Those are the kind of films mm. that you could do if Doctor Who was as big as Star Wars and you had a Doctor Who movie well, yeah, every like, other year and and the years in between, exactly, yeah. you'd have the eighth Doctor in the time. The Rogue One film. thing, yeah. Yeah, and the, yeah, because they're talking about that, and the Rogue One is going to be basically a war movie. Oh, is that, it? That's yeah, the, well. that's the premise. Yeah. Well, you could see uh, a film about the origins of the Time Lords, where it's like a Frankenstein thing with experiments to develop regeneration. Mm. That would be the in-between movie, in between the Doctor Who movies, right? Yeah. Yeah. If Doctor Who was as big as Star Wars, but because it's not as big as Star Wars, it's unlikely. But it's an interesting idea. Yeah. Right, a quick film review, and then let's get out of here. Oh, but of course, shortly after this podcast goes out, people will be walking to buildings around the country and putting crosses on pieces of paper. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but if you value the BBC, and more importantly, if you value schools and hospitals, then you know where that X should go, right? Yeah. Am I allowed to say, am I? Yeah. Am I allowed to infer? As a, as a DJ on Phonic FM, I've got to stay impartial. Oh, I don't care. No, no. <laughs> but I'm with you. That's all I will say. I'm with you. Okay, this week I had another review film, and... Right, uh, they give you a list of titles and you put your name down for certain things and, you know, however many people put their name down, somebody gets chosen, you get sent a film, whatever. So this movie came up and, you know, there's a list of films and I Google them all to see what they all are so I can say, I fancy those two and I'll put my name down for those two and maybe I'll get one, maybe I won't. So this week, uh, the list came up and there's a film on there called Darkest Day. And so I Google it And it says, chap wakes up on the outskirts of Brighton to find Brighton's deserted. Goes in, finds some survivors living in a house in Brighton in the middle of an outbreak of zombies. Mm -hmm. And he arrives, he starts living with them, and then the army turn up. The army are running refugee camps outside the cities. The army turn up. Not because of the zombies, but they're looking for him. Oh. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I put my name down for it, and I got it. And I sat down and watched it on Sunday. And, okay, here's my experience watching it. Opening scene is virtually a remake of the opening scene of 28 Days Later. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I don't mind. I was expecting it to be something like 28 Days Later, so that's fine. I love the opening scene of 28 Days Later, and I don't mind seeing it being repeated. And then he finds these people and goes to live in this house, and there's like a 15-minute bit, which is a bit like Made in Chelsea in the middle of a zombie outbreak, right? Mm. It's just a bunch of 20-somethings living in a house, quite hedonistic lifestyle, drink, drugs, and smoking, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, yeah, all right, not sure quite where this is going to go. Mm. 
and then something happens where you realize that it was important that you had that bit but the whole while i'm thinking i don't recognize any of these actors mm. and the performances are not professional no i mean nobody was letting themselves down but the performances weren't great and i'm thinking oh, is this going to be one of those films that doesn't really do it mm. But then, like I say, you get this moment where something kicks off in the house that sets the chain of events that the sort of last 50 minutes of the movie into motion. And then all of a sudden the acting really picks up and the storytelling really picks up. And actually it becomes a really good film. Mm. So then I'm thinking, that's really all rather strange. But... By this point, it's become a really good zombie movie, right? Okay. So I'm thinking, okay, I really enjoyed that, but it still felt slightly odd because the first half felt really different from the second half. Mm -hmm. And then in the end credits, there's no writer credit. Oh. So then there's a 30-minute documentary on the disc. So I watched the 30-minute documentary, and it turns out the guy who plays the lead part and the reason he plays the lead part is not because he's an actor or he wants to act, but because he didn't want to put anybody else through all the stuff he put himself through. <laughs> he, he started this film when he's at university as a student film. It was supposed to be a 30-minute film. But I think something like his camera broke, so he had to stop making it. And then he, he got a more expensive and better camera, so he decided to start from scratch and turned it into a feature film instead. There are things like tanks, helicopters. There are shots of Brighton from up in the air where you see Brighton city centre devastated and filled with, you know, busted up cars and all this kind of stuff and litter and broken windows. And I'm thinking, okay, where did he get the budget for all this from? Yeah. He's now working. If I tell you what his job is now, He's now working as a video effects artist for um, Disney. Okay. He did the whole film, 90 minutes long, uh, that stands comparison with 28 Days Later on a budget of £1,000. Well, I never. And the reason there's no script is because he was just getting the, the actors, yeah. the people who yeah. came in to act. Yeah. To, although they had a story, yeah. he was just getting them to come in. He was just do, creating scenarios and... Yeah, basically. Yeah, let them go. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And it really works. Excellent. It's just, well, actually, uh, there's going to be a screening of it in London probably just a few days, maybe a week after this podcast comes out. So if anybody wants to look it up, it's called Darkest Day, mm. or go on our Facebook page, and, or my Facebook page, look for my Facebook page, and there'll be a link or whatever somewhere in my timeline. Or just get in touch or whatever. Mm. But if you want to go and see it in London, it's going to be shown in London. Just one screening or else it comes out on DVD on the 25th of May, I think. Another. But, Sounds fascinating. Yeah, well worth it. And so it's well 28 Days Later meets Kez. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's, I love that. I love it's that. got a very strange feel for the first half an hour, but it took eight years to make, seven yeah. years to make. He mm. started it in 2008, I think. And it took four years to film. Mm. So all these people are in it are four years older at the end of it, which is why the performances obviously get more, become stronger as you go through the film because they're sort of, you know, becoming 
you know, more assertive as adults. It'd be interesting to know whether he's going to carry on. Well, it looks like. I suppose he might carry on and make films, but he's got a job now, hasn't he? Yeah. So, I don't know, he might make more films in between. Having said that, you don't know whether actually, if he were to make another film, it would work, because this is just basically a remake of 28 Days Later. It's Mm. just a student film. It's a test yourself. It's a test your legs film. Mm. Mm. But he's done such a good job of it. Actually, you'd think next time, if somebody gives him a good script, because the, the cinematography, the filming is glorious, and he's done a, you know, uh, every time something like, uh, this is all in documentary, he says, right, there's bits where zombies are chasing people, right? But because we didn't have time to do proper makeup, we just kind of splashed red paint on their faces. Mm. So in order that you don't get to see their faces too well, you know, when the zomb- zombies are chasing people, we just shake the camera that little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks really good. Oh, it's yeah. really effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like everything in there. He uses a lot of different techniques in there, but he uses them all in service of what he's creating. Yeah. He's done a fantastic job. Talking about effects, I was... uh, Obviously, this week I saw the um, Star Wars Episode Seven trailer, the the second one, and just, yeah, it was just great. Just really great. But the thing that really hit me between the eyes was the footage from the the event where they, they... they premiered this trailer, and I don't know if you've seen it, the footage of one of the new droids, BB-8, the one that's like a ball with just a head mm. on it, which obviously you look at that and you think, well, that's CGI, obviously. Oh, no, it's all practical, isn't it? I know. I was just blown away. All of a sudden, it rolls on stage, and it's just, whoa. Oh, whoa. yeah, I think that's what J.J. Abrams said. He's, mm. All the effects are, uh, insofar as it's possible, all the effects are practical. They've made models for things. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. this film... Darkest day. Mm. There are scenes, I said, scenes with helicopters and with a, not a tank, but like a armoured personnel carry, carrier, the thing. And you're thinking, how on earth did he afford to get those? Did did he have a friend who works for the Air Force or something? Mm. No, he actually gets models out of this armoured personnel character <laughs> that he's built himself or a friend of his has built that's like six inches long yeah. and yet he manages to put it on screen looking real yeah, you know it's, it's a world away from that tank in robot brilliant yeah he's just obviously painted it in in such a way that he's managed to make it and the helicopter you seriously can't tell that he's got a little eight inch long model helicopter on the screen it's just fantastic mm. there's a Sharich's moment <clears throat> And on that note, we'll leave it, I think. (laughs) Right, until next time then, I was JR. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon.